You may be seated. A couple things I forgot to announce this morning. Uh, One is, next week I'd like to meet with all ministry leaders. If you're a ministry leader, uh, we have the results from the ministry interest surveys, and I'd like to talk those over with you um, over here in the youth wing during the Sunday school hour next week. So, if you'll be here next week, I'd love for you to attend that, and we can talk about that, okay? And then uh, finally, for the, for the funeral service on uh, Tuesday for Karen Otto, we are providing a luncheon. If you would like to make something for that, we'd love that. That would be a great way to bless a family. So, so think about that. And if you would, you could talk to um, Elaine Altman or Ruth Schutz about uh, bringing a dish uh, for that luncheon after the funeral's over. So thank you. Thank you for considering that. Forgiveness isn't easy. It's, it's something that uh, can be very difficult. Reconciliation may be even more difficult. In South Africa, there's a story that has been born out of this, this struggle with the truth of what forgiveness is and what reconciliation is. And it's a story that tries to illustrate. I don't know, I can't authenticate its veracity. I don't know if it really happened. But, but it's a story that's been told and I think it powerfully shows the dynamics involved when it comes to forgiveness. There was a 14-year-old boy named James. James was a, a newspaper boy, delivered papers, and he was saving for years, three years, to buy a new bike. He had a, he had a junky old bike that he was using, but he saved for three years, 14 years old, now he can buy a new bike. So he bought this beautiful new bike, so proud of it, until the day when Eric, Eric the, the son of a local mob leader and, and whose uncle is also the corrupt police chief, Eric, who grabs him in an alley, takes his bike and says, give it here, kid, and goes off and rides away with it. Fast forward three years. And one day, James sees Eric. Eric goes up to James and says, I need to talk to you about something. Can we talk? And, and James says, what do you have to talk to me about? Well, you see, Eric's had some rough times of his own. And he says, I, I, just, need, I just need to talk to you. I, you see, my dad died. And I've been, I've been trying to figure this whole thing out. And I started going to church again. And I heard in church I'm supposed to... I'm supposed to ask forgiveness of people that I hurt, and so I'm trying to find the people that I have hurt in the past, and so I'm apologizing to you. You're apologizing to me, James says, to me? He says, yeah, yeah, I need to make this right. I need to make this right. And he's, he can hardly believe it, and there's kind of a long, awkward pause. So he says, well, will you forgive me? James thinks for a second. Let's the silence kind of take over there. He says, you think you can just come to me after all these years and, and just walk up to me and, and say you're sorry and then everything goes back to the way it was? And he says, well, y- yeah. Eric says, that, that, that's what I want to do because I, I need to fix this relationship. James says, what relationship? Well, that's what I'm trying to do right now. I'm trying to make this right. James says, I only have one question to ask you then, and then we can talk about forgiveness. Eric says, ask the question. 
What about the bike? Now, um, that story illustrates some of the difficulty of trying to make things right with people. I mean, the bike was gone. You know, the bike's gone. (laughs) Someone else has it. It's junk, whatever. But it's a very real thing. It's a very real loss to James. He feels it. He feels it. And so when you approach somebody and you say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Sometimes the pain is deep enough that right then and there, to say, I forgive you, it doesn't seem very authentic. In fact, it doesn't come from an authentic heart at all. And sometimes people demand it and they say, well, you have to forgive me. The Bible says it. And like we hold people hostage with the Lord's Prayer, you know. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So you've got to forgive your debtor. And yet we all know, even if you say, okay, fine, you win, I forgive you, you know. If it's not genuine, then it's just words. It's just words. Forgiveness and reconciliation isn't easy. And I only have to ask you the question, you know, who are you not reconciled to? Who has an outstanding issue with you? And suddenly all sorts of things come to mind. And it is. It's painful. I want to talk about Jacob's life this morning and his reconciliation both with God and his attempt with his brother. I want to talk about that and see if we can get at how we can reconcile with others using the example we see here in Genesis. So would you turn your Bibles to the first book in the Bible, Genesis, chapter 31. We'll start in 32, verse 6. That's where we'll go. So if you're jumping into this series new, we're looking at the life of Jacob, who is the grandson of Abraham. Uh, Jacob is uh, one of the patriarchs, we call him, father of the uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, if you know anything about Jacob, uh, he... He got his brother's birthright, his inheritance for a bowl of soup, and also stole his brother's blessing from his father. Esau hates his brother for this and wants to kill him. And now Jacob is returning home. God tells him to leave. He was staying with his uncle Laban, married a couple ladies, and things started to go south with his relationship with Laban. And God says, you need to leave. Go back. So Jacob leaves with his family, and now he's traveling and he has to pass by Esau's territory. Now, we're picking it up in Genesis 32, verse 6. They're on the road. And Jacob has sent messengers ahead to talk with Esau, find out what's going on. And it says in verse 6, when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, And the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children, 
But you have said, I will make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there. And from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, To whom do these belong? And where are you going? Who owns all these animals in front of you? You're to say they belong to your servant Jacob. They're a gift sent to my Lord Esau, and he's coming behind us. We'll pause there. Terror makes you pray a little harder, probably than normal. And Jacob finds out that Esau's coming to meet him. And oh yes, there's 400 people with him, 400 men coming with him. And Jacob is terrified. First thing he does is he makes a plan. He makes a plan. Let's separate into two groups so that if if Esau attacks one group, the other group might be able to flee and escape with their life. And then he prays. Now, a lot of people like to comment on this and they say, well, look at Jacob, that conniver, you know. He made the plan first, separated his two groups, and, and then he prays. That's the wrong order. You need to pray first and then make the plan. Now, look. I don't know. I I understand what they're saying, right? But if it's me and this person that hates me and wants me dead, he's already said that in the past, is coming with 400 people, I mean, maybe I'll pray as I make the plan, but can you, I don't know if I can even fault him for feeling that way, you know? Like, I got to save my people. I got to save, you know, these people that I love. And that's what he's doing. He's reacting to the moment. He wants to be reconciled to his brother And yet, from what he can see, his brother doesn't seem to want to be reconciled to him. Or else, why bring 400 men with you? What's the deal with that? And so, uh, number one then about reconciliation this morning that we'll say is, reconciliation requires prayer and wise planning. Prayer and wise planning. You better be prayerful about it. I mean, Jacob's prayer is beautiful here. Uh, You might say, well, it was under duress and, and... And he was so scared, and it's a foxhole prayer. Maybe it is, but it's still a beautiful prayer. I mean, he says in verse 9, Oh, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. You know, he's like, God is God of my parents and my grandparents. But then he also says, it's the God who said to me, go back to your country. He's taking it personally. You're my God. And then I love this. Verse 10, I love it. I mean, this is Jacob. The deceiver, the heel grasper, Jacob, who says, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown to your servant. I am unworthy. Maybe the closest thing to a confession, an admission of guilt you're going to see in Jacob's life. You know, I mean, I'm the guy who uh, made sure I got the birthright and the blessing. I'm the guy. I trick people. And I'm not worthy of all that you've done for me, God. I mean, that's as humble as I think you're ever going to see in his life. Humility. I don't deserve any of this. That's the way he comes to God. And of course, he asks for his help. Esau may attack. Please help God. And then he makes this careful plan. This careful plan. He separates his camp into two groups. And then he says, I'm going to send a gift to, to, to Esau. Now, now, some rabbis comment on this gift. Uh, Jim, can you pull up the gift on, on the... Uh, there it is. There's Jacob's gift. 
That's pretty good. You'd want to be on Jacob's Christmas list, you know? I mean, that, that's a good gift. And one thing he says about this gift is he says he hopes that it appeases his brother. He hopes that it pacifies his brother. See if I find my, my verse for that here. Um, 32, verse 20. Look at chapter 32, verse 20. He says, Be sure to say your servant Jacob's coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. These gifts he's hoping will, and, and, and the text says, pacify. It's actually the word for atonement. It's the same word like make atonement for, or New Testament uh, propitiation, which the NIV doesn't use that word. Um, the NIV, I think, says make atonement for. But, but great word, propitiation means I'm going to satisfy an angry person who's rightfully angry at me. Right? It's what Jesus did with God when he died on the cross. He satisfied a God who's angry at our sin. And Jacob's saying, I have an angry brother who's rightfully angry at me. I'm giving him this enormous, extravagant gift. What does this gift say to Esau? What's the message behind the gift? The message is, uh, number one, I'm really rich. I mean, you can see that. That, that, That's just a portion. Some rabbis say that's a tenth. I don't know if they know that for sure, but they say that could be a tenth. Maybe that was the tenth that he offered God earlier when when he made that vow. Don't know. But um, that's a portion of what Jacob has. He has a lot more. That's a lot. I think it's also a message that I have wronged you. I have taken what could have been yours, the birthright. I've taken the blessing. He said, I'm trying to make some, some atonement for what I've done. Is that wrong? Well, if he's trying to buy forgiveness, well, then it's wrong because you can't do that. If he's trying to settle an angry brother so that true forgiveness can take place, I, I'm better with that. I'm a lot better with that. Um, reconciliation then. Two people making up and restoring the relationship, if reconciliation is going to happen, it's going to happen because prayer happened, and it's going to happen because you've made some plans, some wise plans. What are you going to say to that person that's offended you or that you have offended them? What are you going to say to them? Make a plan. Have you done something that has taken something away from them that you could restore, Zacchaeus. You know, I'll give you so much more back from what I've taken from you. We all know the story of Zacchaeus. But the Zacchaeus story is also one of restitution, right? Could could I offer something back because I have cheated you greatly? There's some wise planning that can go into how we interact with the people that we've hurt. And I know we can't always restore things that we've taken, But if you can restore it, what about the bike? Why why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? So there's the gift. Reconciliation requires prayer to God because if God doesn't work in hearts, how will you ever reconcile? If left to our own devices, we are a bitter, judgmental, angry, wrathful people. But then when God works in hearts... There's the ability 
to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation. So Jacob hopes to appease his brother. Let's keep going. Now, um, he made the plan, he prayed to God, and then he sends his camp ahead of him, and he spends the night by himself, or so he thinks. It says in verse 21, So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. Verse 22 of chapter 32. That night Jacob got up and took his two wives. Oh, I think I'm in the wrong spot. Let me see. Oh, yeah, I'm in the right spot. His two maidservants, his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. The man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I'll not let you go unless you bless me. The man said, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. The deceiver. Um, then Jacob. Then the man said, you will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and with men and you've overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites did not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. This has got to be one of the most fascinating stories in the Bible, don't you think? Like, People struggle over what to make of this. Jacob's wrestling match. You know, I mean, what is going on here? Some people say, well, if you look at verse um, 24 and you take it very literally, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him. And they say, if you you just look at that one verse, Jacob was left alone, you could imply that he was alone actually all night. And so his wrestling was metaphorical. and Maybe that was an all-night prayer meeting with God. I don't see it that way. I think that, and if you hold that interpretation, that's fine. I think it's problematic because, first of all, you don't get to wrestle answers to prayer out of God. That is, you don't get to enforce your will so that you get an answer to prayer. I I, I don't see that. There's the parable of the widow and the unjust judge, but God is not like the unjust judge who says, no, go away, go away. And also, you have a very physical uh, uh, outcome to this wrestling match. Jacob is now limping after this thing's over. Uh, a physical effect on his, on, on his body. So to me, it feels like a very physical wrestling match. Again, if you, if you think differently, that is quite all right. And another question people ask about this passage is, who, who is the man? You know, is this an angel? Is this Jesus? I lean towards saying this would be an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. I lean towards that. But certainly, it's God. Because Jacob says in verse 30, I saw God face to face and my life was spared. Okay, I saw God. That's why he called the place Peniel. Now, but the thing about this, how in the world does, I mean, well, okay, it says, 
the man, verse 25, saw that he couldn't overpower him. Well, what is God doing in this passage? You know, what in the, what in the world is God doing? Let's, let's talk about a few things God's doing, just, just so we can understand it better. It doesn't say that there was a man walking by and Jacob picked a fight with him, you know? I'm just angry at Esau and I'm going to take it out on some, some innocent passerby. No, it says Jacob was alone and a man came and wrestled him. It makes it look like God initiated this whole thing. I think we can safely conclude that God came to him and <laughs> let's go, you know? Some of you can relate. Some of you, I think, would even say, sometimes it feels like God mugs me, you know? It's like, God, this is a hard thing you've got me going through. But, but Jacob's in the middle of that. So, so God comes to him, and they wrestle. And then it says the man saw that he couldn't overpower Jacob. What's up with that? God not being able to win a wrestling match? How does that work? Now, again, if you subscribe to the notion that this is God in a human form, maybe Jesus, certainly taking on a human form comes with limitations. I mean, I, th- I, think, I think us believers in Jesus kind of understand that, right? I mean, Jesus came to earth, he, he thirsted, he, he bled, he died, he, he limited himself. Even though he was God, he was omniscient, he knew all things, he could heal anything, but we all know he had limits. Because he imposed those limits on himself, he accepted them. This, apparently, is a wrestler who has imposed limits on himself. And so as they're wrestling, he couldn't overpower Jacob. And also, this whole idea of, you know, the, the, the face. You can't see his face. You, you know Old Testament thought? When, when Moses wanted to see God, he got, Moses said, show me your glory. And God says, I can't show you my glory. If, if you see my face, you'll, you'll die, right? So apparently, God allowed darkness to... Cover his face. Cover the glory of his face so that he could wrestle Jacob. And then when morning's coming, God needs to leave because darkness is what he was using to cover his face. And, and Jacob, who was wrestling and, and it, it's going, Jacob's not letting him go. God had touched his hip. Okay, God had touched his hip. Now, now maybe you say, what was Jacob doing? You know, I mean, like, your hip's hurting, and you're holding on to God. You're holding on to this man wrestling you. You've got to bless me. You've got to bless me. You've got to bless me. That seems so conniving again and selfish, and that's Jacob. But I just want you to think for a second. What's the alternative? You're Jacob. This guy comes and wrestles you. You didn't start the fight. This guy comes and starts a fight with you. And, 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 and it's not that you can't win and he can't win. And then he touches your hip. He doesn't play fair. He plays dirty. And, and now you're hurting. Your hip is, is hurting, you know, and you're in pain. And, and all you're doing is holding. What are your options? You let go and cower? Or you hold on for dear life? I mean, isn't that your two options? I'm not taking anything away from Jacob on this. You know, it's like he holds on to God. So... My question then, of looking at this mysterious passage, is how do you win a wrestling match with God? And did Jacob actually win? And I would say, yes, he won. But he won by surrendering. Do you get that? I mean, he, he wins by, by just holding on and not letting go. He wins by losing, in a sense. It, 
it's like, I'm thinking about this, you know, like, how, how does this all work? How do you wrestle God and, and come out of that? Because clearly God wins. You know what I mean? Like, in a sense, God wins because cause he touches Jacob's hip. And, 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 he, and he cheats, if you want to call it that. And, and now, now Jacob's hurting, but Jacob won't let go. I won't let go. I won't let go. I won't let go. But in a sense, Jacob's done. You know, Jake, Jacob can't overcome God. And yet God calls him an overcomer. You want to win a wrestling match with God, you surrender. And you hold on. You hold on to God and surrender to him. You submit. I think, and again, a lot of mystery in this passage, a lot of mystery. I think this is God coming to Jacob and showing Jacob, you can't win everything that you do. You can't enforce your will. You are in a place where God is God and Jacob is Jacob. And you need to know that. God is God. He is ultimately in control. And if you think you're going to overpower him, he will touch your hip. When you think you can control your own life, he will touch your hip. You will not come out of that battle unscathed. You know what I mean? You think you can control your life and you don't need God. Just watch what he does in your life. Watch the, the scar that he brings, the, 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 the difficulty that he brings to soften your rebellious, stubborn heart, you know? And when he brings you to the place where all you can do is hold on and say, bless me, bless me, bless me, that's when he has you where he wants you. Because all you've got at that moment is God. So you win. But you win through a sense of losing. I mean, and that, I'll let, you, I'll let you go home and think about that more. That's the best way I can say it. That's the best way I can say it. What was God seeking in that moment? I, I think God is seeking Jacob's realization of his own weakness. I, I can't do this on my own. I need God to bless me. And that's what happened. So Jacob gets a new name. So number two, if, if hopefully the notes are up there, reconciliation with God requires surrender. If you're going to win with God, you're going to lose. Okay? Jesus said it the best, right? Um, whoever wants to save his life will actually lose it. But if you lose your life for Christ, you'll save it. Those of you that say that my life is God's, he can do whatever he wants, that is the person that wins by losing their life. Okay, now. Let's talk about Esau. Would you look at Genesis 31, verse 1? Or, I'm sorry, 33, verse 1. 33, verse 1. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men, so he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He, went, he himself went on ahead, bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Let me set this up for you. I don't know if Esau was mad or not at that point. You know what I mean? Why do you get 400 guys together? 
Was Esau trying to scare his brother? Or was he actually, at some point in this whole process, ready to wipe his brother off the face of the earth? I mean, we just don't get told that. But we do know this. Esau is there with 400 guys. And you get this flock of animals that comes up with a servant. And the servant says, uh, Esau says, what's this? And the servant says, oh, these, 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 this flock belongs to uh, your servant Jacob. They're for my Lord Esau and Jacob's following. Okay, send them back. Flock number two comes up. Esau's like, what's this? And the servant says, oh, these belong to your servant Jacob. They're a gift for my Lord Esau and Jacob's following behind. Okay, send them back. Flock number three comes up, you know, and they do this five times. And I guess if I'm Esau, I'm like, you know, you start to chuckle a little bit, you know, like five flocks and all, the, all these gifts, you know, and there's Jacob. He's limping. And if you've ever had your hip hurt, I'm guessing that day wasn't a very pain-free day for Jacob. I'm guessing he's feeling it. I can see him riding an animal and getting off the animal and limping and then bowing seven times, ancient custom of, 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 the, uh, of, the, uh, of the East, to bow down in respect. Seven times he does it. And then Esau, verse 4. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you, he asked. These are the children God has graciously given your servant. And then he introduces them. Now, if you were reading this for the first time, you'd be shocked by that. You'd be shocked, you know, at at the reconciliation. So shocked that, um, can can you pull up our our kissing uh, screen here? The Nashak. We got it? Oh, I mean the Hebrew one that we erased. Nashak. There we are. Nashak. Now, in Genesis 33, verse 4, it says, Esau kissed Jacob. Uh, and I wasn't able to show the Hebrew this morning. I wish I could have. But, but it's the same word used in 1 Samuel 10. You know, it's the word kissed. But the word in Genesis 33, 4 has the word kissed, Nashak has little dots above the word. Little dots are above the word kissed. And they're, the, and they're not above kissed in 1 Samuel 10.1. Well, that's interesting. Fifteen times in the Old Testament, fifteen times when rabbis and those would, would copy the Bible, fifteen times rabbis chose a word and they put little dots above it. Why? Why? Why put dots above Neshach? Well, some rabbis say it's because Esau couldn't possibly be reconciled to Jacob. He still hated his brother. There's no way he would have changed. And so when they embraced, he wished to actually bite his neck and not kiss him on the neck. I'm not kidding you. Common rabbinical uh, interpretation of this passage. Other rabbis say, and I'll, I'll go with them, that this is, a, this is such a profound moment. This is such a profound, brotherly kiss that you all ought to pay attention to it. 
This is no ordinary kiss. This is a kiss of forgiveness and reconciliation like none other. Fifteen times, rabbis put little dots above the words for, for, we, for reasons we don't know. This is one of them. I believe it's genuine. I believe the weeping that they both did is very, very genuine. Now, uh, reading on, uh, verse 6, Then the maidservants and their children approached, and they bowed down. Next, Leah and all of her children came and bowed down. Last of all, Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau says, What do you mean by all the droves I meant? To find favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty. My brother, keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. Seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. Jacob just wrestled God. And darkness covered God's face so you couldn't see him in all of his glory. Otherwise, Jacob's face would have melted or something. I don't know. But, but Jacob couldn't see God's face, and now Jacob sees Esau's face and says, your face looks like the face of God to me. What does God's face look like? What, what did the wrestler's face look like? It looked like Esau's face. No, 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 not, not literally. Not literally. But what, did, what does God's face look like? God's face looks like when you sit across from a person and say, I forgive all that you've done to me. That's what God's face looks like. God's face looks like you, when you see that person that you used to try to avoid, you know that person, and not look their way, when you can look their way and smile at them and they smile at you, that's the face of God. That's the face of God. So when people come into a church and, and, and they have problems with people and the problems aren't getting worked out and they say, wow, I don't even know what God's doing in this place, they have a good point because to welcome people in God's name is to welcome them with the face of God. And to reconcile with people that we have things against, to forgive them is to show them the face of God. That is the face of God. Number three, then, Reconciliation with humans rehearses, rehearses the gospel. Reconciliation with humans rehearses the gospel. Um, I don't know about you, but I love The Princess Bride, and I'm planning on seeing it, you know, in Three Lakes, right? Anybody in The Princess Bride in this room right now that's doing it? Shoo? Chase? Nice. Okay. Okay, good, good. Um, I'm excited about that. Now, have you been doing rehearsals? Yes, yes, rehearsing, good. Um, when you rehearse, you rehearse for the main performance. It's coming up, and, and we're, we're going to be there to see it. It's the main performance. Now, when we rehearse the gospel, the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the dead. God has turned his face towards you in love because Jesus died to cover over all the messed up things you've done. Now, that was the main performance. It already happened. Anything that we do after it, we're rehearsing it. We're just rehearsing it. I'm trying to carry out what God did to me, and I'm trying to carry it out with you. You've hurt me. You've offended me, but I'm willing to forgive because God forgave me. I'm rehearsing it. I'm just rehearsing it. And though I wasn't there to see the main act, 
But I can read about the main act, and I can live by the main act, the cross of Christ. That is why we reconcile. That is why we have the ability to forgive people. That's it. Reconciliation takes three. You, the person that you need to be reconciled to, and God. If God's not working, I don't, I don't see how it's going to happen. Now, if you, let me distinguish between forgiveness and reconciliation for a moment. Anyone can offer forgiveness to anybody. You're not limited in who you forgive. Jesus, when he was being crucified, said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Did any of those people ask him to forgive them? Maybe later they did. Maybe one day they realized, oh, I helped crucify Christ. I need him, you know. Maybe. But at the moment when he offered the forgiveness, they wanted him dead. And he still offered forgiveness. So so forgiveness is something that we can give people as a gift. It's not contingent on them receiving it. It's not contingent on them even being around. You can do that. Better if you're with the person, you can talk about it. But you can offer that. Reconciliation takes two, or actually three. Because reconciliation means you're going to sit down with that person and say, we need to restore this relationship. We need to make this right. And brothers and sisters, there are some relationships They can be reconciled, but they can never go back to the way that they were. I mean, can we just say that? I mean, you can say, I'll be reconciled to you. I will not look away from you. I will speak with you. But there's still going to be boundaries here because of what you've done. There has to be boundaries here. Sin leaves marks. Sin leaves scars, and we've got to have boundaries. But we can still be reconciled. Some reconciliation happens... And it's like total and complete. And it's amazing. But you know what? Whether you have memories that will linger or whether you experience some sort of fullness of reconciliation that you've never experienced before, whether you get, I don't know if you want to call it partial reconciliation or not, but whether you get that or or a fuller version of it, it's still possible. It's the person that, I read a story about a woman once who, uh, lost her son to a murderer, and she and the murderer apologized to her from prison, and she forgave him. Now she's not going to have dinner with him. He's in prison. You know, there's no way they can have a relationship. But she can still visit him occasionally. She can still be the face of God to her son's murderer. I'm not saying that's what I'm expecting of you, you know, because that's an extreme situation when someone murders your child. But that's only possible. I believe through the Holy Spirit of God working. It's got to be. I'm just saying reconciliation is a difficult process. But if you believe in the gospel of Christ, it's worth pursuing. And if the other person won't reconcile, fine. That's okay. You've done your part. If the person you're trying to reconcile with tries to tell you everything should go back to the way it was before, That may not be healthy or possible. Just making sure I say that one more time. There can be a lot of manipulation that happens. You need to forgive me. What about the bike? It's not about the bike. It's about us. No, it really is about the bike too. Something happened there. I'm at a loss here. Um, Can I challenge you then to think about the person that you have not reconciled with, 
You've not pursued it, but you feel like God is doing something in you right now. Don't foolishly go to reconcile and try to act like nothing happened, but wisely pursue reconciliation with that person, please. And when you do that, you rehearse the gospel. And you may even be the face of Christ to someone. Or, if you're the offender and you apologize, you may see the face of Christ when that person says, I forgive you. Let me close with this. Everybody who reads this passage, not everybody, but a lot of people who read this, Esau and Jacob embracing, kissing, crying, they, they see the parable of the prodigal son. Did you feel that when you were reading it? it it's a prodigal son. Can we get the prodigal son painting? This is by Rembrandt. Um, They see the prodigal son here. And I think with good reason. Isn't it funny though? I mean, just just thinking about it, Esau kind of stands as the father who's receiving the brother back. That's interesting. I don't know what to make of that, but Esau is the one receiving his brother. They embrace. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You expect violence, but you get a kiss. Isn't that the gospel? You expect violence, but you get a kiss. I deserve hell. You deserve hell. We deserve to go there together. Jacob was shaking in his boots, ready for 400 guys to converge on him. And look at what he gets. Would you live this out in your life? Would you live it out so that God can both change you and the people around you, so that God gets glory by his gospel being seen in how you do life? I once was really stressed out about a, some friends of mine who were getting divorced, first high school friends of mine that I ever knew that were getting divorced, and I was really close with both of them. And I remember thinking, what can I do about it? And the answer really was, I could do nothing but pray. But I still felt guilt, like, should I be getting on their case? Should I, you know, and I was talking to a friend of mine, a pastor, and uh, he, he said, their, their failure comes down to a failure of letting the gospel flow through their lives into their relationship. I was like, wow. <laughs> I mean, you just made their marriage about the gospel. Is that what you did? That's what he did. I pray that we do the same. If you want to talk about this, uh, we do cross-training over here. We talk about the sermon. We pray through it, um, too. So um, you're invited to come to that. Otherwise, uh, would you stand with me and we will be dismissed.